All right, so we're going to pick up into Micah 2 and 3. Again, not going to be too cheerful today, but we'll, we'll save that cheer for probably next week. We'll begin with the invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, and so before we get started in this text, Pastor and I, we have our bi-weekly staff meeting on Mondays and Wednesdays, and we go through the Treasury Daily Prayer, and we had this writing from John Chrysostom, and it was, he was speaking about the seven woes that Christ gives, as recorded in Matthew 23. We had something written, and I thought it was pretty applicable to our text going, or our study through the Minor Prophets, because again, they're not super cheerful and everything, but why, is, why are the prophets speaking this way? What's the benefit of that? And so, John Chrysostom writes, Jesus directs his speech to the city in this way, also being mindful to correct his hearers and say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what does the repetition mean? This is a way of expressing his pity for her and bemoaning her and greatly loving her. Like a woman ever loved by him, but she has despised the one who loved her, and therefore she is on the point of being punished. Being now about to inflict the punishment, he pleads with her. This is also the pattern of the prophets who said, Turn to me, and she returned not. Then having called her, Jesus tells of her bloodstained deeds. You who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together, and you would not. In this way, he is also explaining his own dealing with her. Not even with these things has he turned her aside, nor withdrawn his great affection toward her. But it was his desire, even so, not once or twice, but often, to draw her to himself. For how often would I, says he, have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. He says this to show that they were ever scattering themselves by their sins. He indicates his affection by similitude, for indeed the hen is warm in its love toward its brood. Everywhere in the prophets it is the same image of the wings, and in the song of Moses and in the Psalms, indicating God's great protection and care. So he's speaking of here is like, Again, what is the role of the prophets? What is the role of Christ even pronouncing these woes there? It's not out of hatred. It's not out of disgust. It's out of love. And so he's saying, come to me, return to me. We saw that theme, especially in Amos. And we'll see kind of these similar themes throughout these minor prophets of, yeah, there's kind of this hellfire and brimstones, but it's not for the sake of just hellfire and brimstones. What's the point of it? It's for repentance to return, to turn from your ways. You see that in the modern church with excommunication. We're not doing it because we enjoy it, but what's the purpose of that if not to draw people back in repentance there? And so we're just keeping that in mind as we go into, even now in chapter 2, Micah begins with some woes here to them. But keeping that in mind, and even for us in the modern church here of what pastors 
what their purpose is. And we're also reading one more thing. We read, we're reading through the, pastoral, the book of Pastoral Rule by St. Gregory the Great, another church father. It's just a marvelous handbook for pastors and deals with all sorts of issues, but the same type of concept of loving your people isn't telling them what they want to hear all the time, or even probably most of the time. We'll see that here in chapter 3 in Micah, especially of the false prophets and the false preachers who are crying out peace when there wasn't peace, and doing all these things just for money. So what's the sake of the, or the purpose of a pastor, if not to shepherd, to care for? And a shepherd with a sheep sometimes has to poke the sheep a little bit with a staff, but that's out of love for them, that they may turn to the right path. So even though, again, these are kind of downers, sometimes we didn't end on a high note last week, just keeping that in mind of what this purpose is and seeing even ourselves in the modern church here of these same calls to repentance and that we should heed these calls by the Lord, even in our own nation, lest we, like the children of Israel, say, we're good, we're having peace, nothing can harm us. Let's heed these words that he has. So are there any thoughts on that before we begin in the text of chapter 2? All right, so in chapter 2, it's split up into kind of three different sections, even though Micah generally is kind of all over the place and it's hard to see where one thing's beginning, one thing or another thing's ending. It's split up into kind of three fairly distinct sections, verses 1 through 5. He is proclaiming this judgment against the wealthy and the rulers here. Then 6 through 11 is another section, and that's the debating against the false prophets. And then finally, verses 12 through 13, it's this, these words and these promises to them. So we will be on a bit of a roller coaster because at the end of chapter 2, it gets a little bit nicer and more pleasant, and then chapter 3 goes right back into the proclamations against them. So... I'll go ahead and read through verses 1 through 5, just so we get the layout of his argument and we don't get kind of lose the forest for the trees here. Starting in verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in this house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast a line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. All right, so that kind of concludes this first section that he's proclaiming these, this, these words of judgment here. And so he starts out with woe. So we have these laments for the deeds of the people. We saw that in Amos as well, kind of that funeral dirge, if you recall, that Amos was giving as if the people of Israel were already dead, even there. So he's already lamenting the people here, lamenting the leaders for what they've 
done and this working of evil. So they're those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. So it's the image of them lying awake at night. So they're leaders by day, but at night they're just sitting there thinking about all these evil deeds. So that's what they're devising at night as they lay in bed to lull off to sleep. They're thinking of all these evil ways that they can inflict on the people here. And so when the morning dawns, they perform it. So they think about it at night, they meditate on it, and not meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, as we see in Psalm 1. But at night, instead of meditating on the law of the Lord, they meditate on their own wicked ways that they will carry out when the morning comes. So when the morning dawns, they perform it. That is, they perform the evil deeds that they thought of at night because it is in the power of their hand. So that word power there is actually the same Hebrew word. It's ale, so it's God. So some commentators will kind of point out that ale can be used in different ways to kind of speak about power more generally. But you could kind of have some inflection there of it being by the God of their hand. So the false God of their power, the power of their hand, by the God of their own hand, they're going to carry out these wicked deeds against the people here. They covet fields and seize them. So these are their wicked deeds. This is the evil fruit of the evil tree, so to say. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So those last two statements, oppressing the man's house, a man and his inheritance, speaking about the same thing here, just in two different, two different lights there. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. So you have these wicked leaders of the nation here. They're devising these evil plans, even though it may actually be legal for them to carry out these things. They can create laws to further oppress the people. That's why they're lying awake at night thinking, hmm, what kind of different laws can I pass to further oppress these people, to fill my pockets Again, no, no connection to today or anything like that. So, not that we see that going on in our nation at all. Though it is theoretically legal, and they are in bounds of legality, what is this laid out by the Lord? It's evil. It's wickedness. So even though it's legal, it still be, could be evil against the Lord. So then in verse 3 here, we have... The Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord here. Behold, against this family, I'm devising disaster. It's the same word. I don't know why the ESV is so uncomfortable with using the same word or the same translation for the same word. Because in verse 1, we have those, they are working evil in their beds. But it's the Lord who's devising disaster. It's the same word in the Hebrew. But they want to kind of separate it some here. And they can't say that the Lord is devising evil or wickedness against an evil and wicked people. An evil that is just against an evil nation here. 
But the Lord is devising disaster here against them. So this just disaster, this just consequences and punishment for what they're doing. We see that in the Lord's Prayer with a third petition. Pray that the Lord would you know, stop and hinder all of these evil desires. So this is what the Lord is doing here. That he himself is devising disaster to stop the evil of these people. From which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster or a time of evil. So he's saying you can't remove your necks. You're going to have this yoke or even... The first image that popped into my head was kind of a guillotine type of thing. You know, you're laying your head there. You can't move your neck out of it. But all the commentators are going with a yoke here. So they can't remove the yoke from their necks. They, they shall not, you shall not walk haughtily. So they're all throughout, they've been puffed up of, look at all this great wealth that we've amassed for ourselves, pat ourselves on the back for all these laws that we've passed to fill our own coffers here. We're pretty proud of what we've done. Good for you, you know, you're getting the promotion at work for being more conniving than the others around you and oppressing the poor. So here's a gold star, here's a promotion, here's the corner office for your work that you've done. But it will be a time of disaster. And so the use here in verse 3, we'll return to this here in verse 5, but keep in mind here, these use are in the plural tense. We don't have that in English, but he's speaking of you in the plural sense. Again, just keep that in mind as we get to verse 5 here in a minute. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. And so those who have been walking haughtily, puffed up with conceit of all these things, in that day, they'll take a taunt song against you as you're being led away with a yoke upon your neck into this foreign land. They're going to be mocking you. They're going to be walking haughtily. They're going to be singing these taunts against you. So we'll see how that feels for you. And they'll say, and this is the taunt song that they will be saying against you. We are utterly ruined and he changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate, he allots our fields. So they're singing these taunt songs against them as they're being led out to a field of which has been now allotted to an apostate people. And so a pagan nation, the apostate land, or apostate nation, is now the ones keeping that land there. So it's been removed from them. Therefore you will have none to cast the line before to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. So you have none to cast, remember the casting of lots for the land and everything, for the apportioning of this land. You will have none to cast a line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. So you individually here. Now he's speaking against them individually as leaders. You yourself, you're not going to have any means to get this land or anything like that. You will be just led away in mockery here. So that's the first section that he has, and then we'll get into verses 6 through 11 
for the second section. Are there any questions on this first one? Again, pretty similar themes that we've seen in the Minor Prophets so far. Nothing too new. Again, just disaster upon disaster for those who think no disaster will come upon them. So verses 6 through 11, again, is the debating against the false prophets. So do not preach, thus they preach. And so these false prophets are, then, are the ones that are saying, do not preach. So they're saying to the true prophets, don't preach. Well, how did that work out in Amos, if you recall, of shh, silence? We don't want to hear anything. Okay, silence is yours then. No more prophets will come, for it's going to be dangerous for them to proclaim the message of the Lord to you. So they're saying to the true prophets, don't preach. One should not preach of such such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Again, rather bold statement by them. One should not preach of such things. Don't, Don't preach against us. Don't preach that we should repent and turn from our ways. Don't do that. Don't preach that there's going to be disaster if you don't turn from your ways. Evil shouldn't take. It's not going to overtake us. Yeah, we are a mighty nation, and yeah, God surely won't overtake us or give any kind of evil to us. Yeah, we're obviously more powerful than, than he is. So, see how that works out. Verse 7, should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? So again, this is a speaking of the false prophets. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? And so the Hebrew here in, so the Lord, has the Lord grown impatient? We have an addition in here in the Hebrew, well, what the Hebrew text actually is saying, is has the spirit of the Lord grown impatient? Or has it, his patience grown short? That type of, has his patience been shortened here? So the spirit of the Lord. But in the English, it just translates it it as, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? So are these the deeds? Are the true prophets calling out for repentance for the impending disaster? Are these the deeds of the Lord? Is this what's going to happen? Is this what the Lord's doing? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Well, no. Wait, sorry, I messed, I messed that up. Seven is actually Micah addressing them, is at least how the study note takes it. So it's Micah speaking this to the people. Are these his deeds? Not my words do good. Again, some, it's kind of left up in the air a little bit. Again, kind of difficult with Micah, figure out when, who's speaking when, what's going on. At least the study note says, First of four questions Micah addressed to his hearers, hoping to get them to examine their opposition to his preaching. So they take it as Micah speaking to them, which I guess does make more sense here. So my apologies for that. Verse 8, But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. So but lately my people... So we have that language of my people, 
brought up again here for them. This chosen people of God, the people whom I love, those are the ones who have risen up as an enemy. So the stark contrast here of my people, my chosen people, the people who I saved from the land of Egypt out of the the hand of Pharaoh here, my people, those are the ones rising up as an enemy here. And so they're oppressing, they strip their rich robe from those who pass by trustingly. So they're taking advantage of those who would just walk by and trust them because they're the people of the Lord. They're, they should obviously be upright standing, or upstanding members of, of society. Sorry, my words fell out there. And so they walk by trustingly with no thought of war. So they don't think anything is bad, bad is going to happen as they walk by, and yet they are stripped of their rich robes from them. Verse 9, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. So even the women of my people you're driving out, and the children. So it's not just the military-aged men of the society that you're oppressing who can be oppressed but then still probably fend for themselves, have a living outside of that, leave town and find means elsewhere. They're pressing and driving out the women and the children here. There's complete and utter evil and wickedness that they're doing to these people. And we see that same theme pop up in verse 2 with the a man and his inheritance. And so it's not just the man that you're oppressing, but it's inheritance, his inheritance, the means by which his name, his wealth would carry on to the next generation. So you're not just harming that one generation, but rather the generations to come following from that. Again, don't we see that today of you oppress and take away people's inheritance and steal their wealth to such an end that their children are left with nothing? Even after you die, well, we'll tax that. Tax any wealth that you do have that you could pass on. No, you can't pass that on to your, to your children without a big cut for us. It says, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. So he's calling out to the, Micah's calling out to them, Arise and go, just flee away from this. You see the handwriting on the wall. You see what's been happening to you. Arise, go, save yourself, get out of here, for this great wickedness has come upon you here. That destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, what a marvelous phrase that is. He's just uttering wind and lies, so this breathless uttering of his, saying, I will preach to you, of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for his people. So if he's preaching, eat, drink, and be merry, he's going to be the preacher for the people. He's going to be the one with full pews and everything. Of, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. Eat, drink, be merry. Nothing will befall us here. We're doing just fine here. He would be a preacher for this people. Everyone would love him, and he'd get great, great adornments and great wealth. 
because everyone would just love what he had to say for them. In verse 12 and 13, then we get a rather stark change of tune here. And then chapter 3, we return right back to kind of this woe to them. But all of a sudden, just a really stark contrast. And it seems like it may even be just a whole new section. Again, these, it's kind of hard to tell. Was all of this at one time, or are these a bunch of different little pieces that he was preaching and proclaiming? We'll never know if anyone does claim they know. Maybe they're smarter than we are, and probably they are, but still, there's no way of really knowing this. But it does seem like a really stark contrast of he'd be the preacher for his people. And then this great promise of the Lord in verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. So, O Jacob, the true people of Israel. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So here we're not speaking of really the nation of Israel here, but rather this remnant of Israel this truly faithful people of God, of which we are people of, faithful people of God here. We, this is who he is speaking to here. It is to us. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. So Lord, the imagery of him gathering together his sheep as the good shepherd. All the sheep who are scattered about the earth, who've been sent to this nation or that, driven out from this nation or that one, those who have been oppressed and driven to another place, he will gather them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Which again is a rather odd phraseology at the end there, a noisy multitude of men. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Because he goes from the imagery of the sheep to then just a noisy multitude. What do you think he's? Anything? One idea that kind of brings out is those around the throne. So you have the imagery of those around the throne of God singing these praises day and night. That imagery. So it's just this noisy multitude, this great multitude that no one could number. So these sheep that are brought together before the lamb or our good shepherd. And it's just so great that it's this noisy multitude, all these sheep buying or, oh, I haven't heard any or been around them. Noisy and dumb and scatter all over the place. Yeah. So again, it's, isn't that pretty true for us? Lord, having to gather us who stumble into random cracks in the ground and he rescues us from that and we go right back to the same crack that he just rescued us out of. So we are just this noisy multitude that he's all brought together in one place. And that's why it's a noisy multitude. It's not us all scattered about. It's like at Kramer Chapel when they get everyone together on like call night and everything. You get all the pastors from all around the country coming together. Just this noisy multitude of men. But if you have five guys around the font or something for our early morning service, it's not quite a noisy multitude no one really sings too loudly. They're not quite that bold. We get everyone together and it's this noisy multitude, this great singing of praises to God here. 
verse 13, he who opens the breach goes up before them. So we get another change of imagery here. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So that he at the beginning is going to be the Lord. So he who opens the breach goes before them. So he who breaks us free from this bondage, breaks a hole in the wall that's containing us in this city of wickedness, he comes, breaks a hole, breaks us out, breaks us out of this tomb of death here. And he frees us, and we pass the gate, going out by it. And their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Through this imagery of the Lord, our king, breaking us free, leading us out of this bondage into this great and marvelous light here. Free from all the oppression all the sin, the wickedness of this world. He's gathered us all together around the wall of the city, brought us all together, breaks the hole in, out, leads us out into the green pastures of the new heavens and the new earth here. Just marvelous imagery here, a great, great image for us to think about, ponder, and meditate on. Again, stark contrast to the cries of wickedness beforehand and then in chapter 3, he'll return right back to it. So, a little bit of a roller coaster with Micah here. But, any thoughts on either the less positive or more positive of chapter 2 here? Well, just the. Uh, it reminds me of the divine service when the processional mm-hmm. is going and Jesus' triumphant entrance, and we're following behind him because I like the saying um, the king passes on before them and the Lord at their head. And so that reminds me of the divine service. It's, you know, you're carrying the cross, you're going down, and even during Advent and Lent, you're doing the same thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you can see it. And even just that little bit of the foretaste here, we have the wicked world around us, and it's the Lord breaking free, breaking a hole in the gate, leading us into his sanctuary, his holy of holies here. And so he's going on before us into his sanctuary to his altar, where we feast on the gifts that he gives us. So again, all eyes on Jesus there, from the very beginning to the very end. This marvelous, marvelous practice that I wish more churches would carry out. It's just a great, great thing. So, so a couple more, couple more hands. I, I don't know if there's any um, knowledge about why the, the uh, these lands are being seized and uh, and you know the um, the uh, the houses taken away and then man's mm-hmm. inheritance being seized and all these things and I thought well or is it have these people entered into loans and then they didn't repay the loan and then they're taking mm-hmm. it for that or are they just seizing it outright just I don't know if there's any yeah, is it right legally? Like, you yeah. didn't pay your loan, so now you have to give up your house. That seems to kind of be the imagery here of, you know, they're coveting these fields or scheming of a way to get them. And, well, if you just go out and seize the field, we're not really going to, it's going to be a lot harder. But if you scheme and find a way to get them to take a loan for this, knowing they can't repay it, well, I can, I can seize it if I just wait a few years. 
there. And so, I mean, that's kind of my take on this. That's where I would think is kind of this oppressing that they're doing. Yeah, Barry. Hi. Uh, I just have a heavy heart as I hear the uh, impending judgment coming, you know, and I think of the blindness of the people, and I think it's very similar today. Um, you bring up the name of Jesus, you know, and you just feel a wall coming up. It's almost a stiff neckedness, uh, ne- you know, stiff neck people, and um, I know in Corinthians, Paul writes and says people are blinded by, you know, the God of this age, which is Satan. But uh, I just, my hearts are heavy. And I think you read something earlier about uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, woes to the people. But, I mean, it's just he, he would, uh, he wanted the people to come. Uh, yeah. So if, is there, I guess we're not going to know why. The, the blindness of the people, but um, I just wonder whether I'm doing my part uh, to be a light and be salt and light in the world, and mm-hmm. sometimes I'm too passive maybe in, in sharing my faith, and uh, so, uh, but Micah here it was used by God to deliver, you know, mm-hmm. in a powerful way, a, a impending judgment. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my thought. It's a hard thing, especially as the world gets more and more. There's greater hatred against the Lord and his church here. We kind of like to be, like in verse 11, the preacher for the people and the ones everyone likes and everything. And the more you speak the truth, the more you're going to be hated and the more you want to kind of turn back. And well, maybe I just won't say that here. Maybe I'll just kind of stay a little quiet and... It is that great temptation of ours that we, that we face to do that, but rather what are we called to do is to be that light in everything. Yeah. Knowing that we won't, that we will fail, and where we fail, there is grace and forgiveness. Absolutely. Are there any other thoughts before we move on to chapter 3? All right, chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob, so the leaders of Israel, and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? So again, they're the rulers, they're the leaders. They know what justice is, or at least they should. Undoubtedly, they do. But are you going to truly know that justice? You should know it but you're certainly not carrying it out right now. So you know better, and you're going to be held to a stricter judgment here because you know justice, and you're purposely not carrying it out here in these instances. And the ways that they are doing that is in verses 2 and 3 here. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin, and this is just really graphic imagery, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So it's not just, oh, you're kind of doing a little bit of a grief. You're sinning a little bit against them, oppressing them a little bit. What's the Lord saying here is, 
you're chopping them up, you're devouring them. You're making them like meat in a cauldron, in a stew here. So just utterly devouring my people. Again, that language of my people here. These are my chosen people, and this is what you're doing to them. You who know justice, this is what you're doing. I won't go too much more into graphic imagery here. Then they will cry to the Lord. So that is the rulers, those who do all those things to his people. But he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So we get a few things here that the Lord is going to do. First, he will not answer them. So he's not going to hear their cries to him. He will not answer them. And worse than that, he will hide his face from them at that time. So we get that with the ironic benediction of his face upon the people here. Rather, the Lord is going to be hiding his face from them at that time. He will turn aside from them. He will not look upon them with favor and give them peace, but he will hide his face from these rulers, those who supposedly know justice but do not carry it out. He will hide his face. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. And just great imagery here. So they're crying peace. Things are all good. They're fine and well here. Only whenever they have something to eat. Only whenever the people are liking what he has to say. And so they give him food, give him money for what the message that he has to say here. But declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So once he proclaims that truth to them and they declare or and they put nothing into his mouth, they don't feed him and take care of him, they will declare war against him. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. So again this imagery of night and this imagery of darkness coming upon them, this time where the Glory of the Lord's face is not going to be shining upon them. It will be this time of great darkness where they won't receive visions or divinations. So their message was based on how the people would feed them. They liked what they had to say. But in that time, there will be night and no visions, nothing like that. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. So the day seems to be speaking of the day of judgment, rather, rather, or whether or not it's the kind of microcosm of the day of judgment of the oppression of the people and leading away, being led away into exile, but then ultimately at the final day of judgment being black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So these seers at that time, they'll be disgraced. Diviners put to shame. They'll all cover their lips. 
who'll cover their lips, they will no longer speak, for there is no answer from God. Again, the Lord is bringing this judgment upon them. I want to read something from the book that Pastor and I have been reading in our staff meeting. And so it's speaking about the life of the pastor and the pastor's role here. And he's speaking specifically about the Good Samaritan here. And he brings out to this imagery, For this is what the truth, that is Jesus, teaches through the Samaritan, who took the half-dead man to the inn and applied wine and oil to his wounds. For the wine purged them and the oil soothed them. Indeed, it is necessary that whoever directs the healing of wounds must administer with the wine the bite of pain and with oil the caress of kindness, so that what is rotten may be purged by the wine and what is curable may be soothed by the oil. So they are supposed to call out this repentance, this call to repentance here. But rather, they're just speaking what, whatever message gives them something to eat at this time. Then at that time, the, the seers will be disgraced. This great judgment will come upon them. The study note on verse 7 says, Those who claim to be able to predict the future, see note for Samuel, cover their lips, gesture of uncleanness and mourning. So there'd be no answer as well. So again, we saw that in Amos with them like shaving their heads and everything and mourning, putting on sackcloth. So they're covering their lips in this great time of mourning. But as for me, I'm filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So at the time when all the seers are disgraced, all this great, all this great judgment upon them, as for me, I'm filled with power. Why? Because I'm proclaiming the truth. I'm not proclaiming what the people want to hear in order for me to get food and clothing from them. I'm filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might. So those who were supposed to know justice did not execute justice, and so they will, be head, they will be held to a greater judgment. But as for me, who is filled with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might? So that is his role here. I'm trying to read my chicken scratch handwriting here. Yeah, same thing. Any questions on that before we move on to verse 9? Um, when he's always talking about Jacob, he's talking mostly about those that are not only of Israel, but those that have a heart and understand what he's saying and that want to repent, where Israel is the ones that have no, no desire to, of the repentance. Is that what a that would be the right way of interpreting what he's saying here. I haven't paid too much attention as far as whenever he flips back and forth between Jacob and Israel. Mm-hmm. Have you, have, so you've noticed that kind of correlation there? Well, yeah, he's speaking uh, of Israel? that's the, the impression I'm getting. Because mm-hmm. some of them, he's, he's talking to two different groups, those that would understand and repent of it and understand what's going on, and those that wouldn't. Oh, and I'm wondering if yeah. that would be the case. I mean, in 3.1, he kind of has them parallel to each other. He says, 
hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. So kind of the same group in mind here. And so again, he's kind of flip-flopping back and forth. Again, drawing that connection between Jacob and Esau, that relationship here. So calling them back to that. As far as I don't know if overall he is kind of, whenever he is generally speaking about Jacob, if it is kind of the more faithful of his people. That'd be something interesting. I have a question about verse 4 mm-hmm. of chapter 3. Uh, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Are we to understand that in crying to the Lord, they're not repenting, they're just saying, help us, but, mm-hmm. but not actually repenting? Let me see what word is used there in Hebrew. The joy of technology, whenever you don't know a Hebrew word, you can just look it up. They will cry out, uh, call out. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not sure if it is, it seems can just kind of be that, just crying out of, you know, Lord, save us here, but not in that state of repentance there, of just save us from this calamity. Not that we did anything wrong, but, you know, we're suffering here. Can't you give us a little help? You know, we're your, aren't we your chosen people? Can't you, can't you save us here? He will not answer them. Yeah. I'm thinking of verse 8. Uh of Christ because Micah hears uh, his words remind me of Christ before Pilate Mm. where he uh, Pilate said I claim to declare truth Mm -hmm. and uh, here he's you know Christ obviously was filled with power and the the Holy Spirit and uh, so I just wanted to point that out that spoke to me yeah absolutely we see kind of many images of Christ and all these prophets here, they're the ones to proclaim the truth. And they are hated, We're told by tradition that all of them suffered terrible deaths as a result of that. Much like what Christ suffered. But yeah, they are filled with power and came to declare Jacob to Jacob his transgression. Saw that with John the Baptist. Saw that with Christ Himself, calling them to repentance. Again, the same people here, the people of Israel, His His chosen people, and they they would have none of that. Any other thoughts before we move on to verse nine? All right. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. So it's not make straight the way of the path of the Lord, you know, make straight his paths. Rather, they're making what is straight crooked. So they're detesting justice, detesting the straight law of the Lord here and making all this crooked who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. So again, that imagery of 
devouring the people here. So they're building up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. So equating those two together here. This is great oppression against them. And that's the means by which they are building up Jerusalem and building up Zion, making this great city, not from the faithfulness to God, but rather by the oppression of those around them. Its its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Again, don't see that today at all. His heads give judgment for a bribe. There's no kind of bribery or anything today in the justice system. None of that's going on. Priests teach for a price. It's all that, especially with the Reformation there. Yeah, we'll say we'll sacrifice a mass here. Well, teach and everything, but how do you get a higher price for something? Do you teach what people don't want to hear? Do you preach what they don't want to hear? Or do you preach what people like, and then from there you can charge more? You can earn more money from that way? So it's all just commodities. What do you have to offer? It's prophets practice divination for money. And all throughout, while they're doing all these things, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So again, this whole notion of we can go through the motions, we can come to the temple, sacrifice whatever sacrifices we need. We can preach and teach. Yeah, we'll take some off the top or charge a little extra just for our sake. But then you'll come to church on Sunday and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Probably on Saturday, actually, saying, isn't the Lord in the midst of us? So just that, the arrogance there of you can carry out all these things, this great injustice, but then on Sunday mornings you can say, yeah, yeah, you know, the Lord's in the midst of us. He's blessing our ways. You know, yeah, I can impress all these people, but look at this great wealth. This is Obviously, a great blessing from the Lord then. The Lord's in the midst of us. He's blessing us and all these different means. Again, don't we see that today here? Therefore, because of you, Zion, which again was built with blood, verse 10, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. So Zion, that which has been built up by means of blood and wickedness, will just be plowed down to nothingness, plowed down to be as flat as Nebraska, maybe. I can speak that way because I went to Concordia, Nebraska, so I have a little bit of a right to speak about Nebraska. But it was plowed flat as a field. Still loved it. There's something charming about it. I mean, there's open space. You just can see for miles and miles. Yeah. All you've got is farmland. Yeah. Yeah, you can see everything coming. Well, that's why they have twisters there. You can see them coming from miles away. Yeah. If you had the hills over here, there's no way you could see them coming. But there, yeah, there's nothing but... As long as it's past the corn harvest, because if you had the corn, well, it's six feet high at that point. You can't 
can't see anything. Yeah, there's something charming about that. You can just go out in all these fields and drive for miles, see no one. You know exactly when you're going to start smelling the cow manure. You already had it mapped out on your mark of where the winds come, and that's when it hits you. So there's something charming, but that's not in view. It's not the charming Zion here that he is picturing, but rather plowed as a field without the charming character of Nebraska living the good life. Likewise, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, as again, the temple and everything built up on the, on the hill there, it will become a wooded height. So you see those images of like cities that were just abandoned and just overgrown, the trees growing up, breaking through all the concrete, just destroying it all and bringing it back to nature. So it's the same imagery that he's pulling out here of Jerusalem just becoming this wooded height. You don't even remember that Jerusalem was there and that the temple was there. It's just this forest right there. Do what? They call ghost towns. Ghost towns, yeah. I haven't been to one of those, but it would be pretty eerie, I feel like. And I wouldn't trust anywhere. Maybe out here in California, you probably have a bunch of meth heads around those ghost towns. So I wouldn't trust it there. Maybe Nebraska. Maybe we'll go back there and go to some ghost towns. But... Anyways, sidetrack there. Any thoughts on that? the end of chapter 3 here? All right. It looks like we are going to get a little bit into chapter 4 here, at least for a few minutes. So here, again, we get a great shift here and get these great promises to them. Again, whether or not this was all in kind of the same sermon would be a pretty good distinction between law and gospel. I think you could mark up the sermon pretty well and know when law ended and gospel began. For one, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So again, Zion that was plowed as a field in these latter days, in these later days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. This will be lifted high. It will become another beacon. It will be the beacon there for all to see. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. So here we have the imagery of the last day, the establishing of the new heavens and the new earth here, bringing all the people together. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here we have many nations, not just my chosen nation, my chosen people, but many nations shall come. So this gathering of the sheep from all around, from every tribe, from every nation. Here they will come together and call out, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So come, let us worship the Lord. Same type of thing. Coming all together for this. Verse 3, He shall judge between many peoples, that is the Lord. So those who, in contrast to 
What's it? In verse 11, with the heads who would give judgment for a bribe, so complete injustice. Here we see the stark contrast here of the Lord who is perfectly just, perfectly righteous here. And so he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so those weapons that were used for war, their swords and their spears, now being turned into plowshares and pruning hooks. So there's no more need for these swords and these spears. No more warfare, no more bloodshed, no more oppressing of the people, but rather this great time of working the fields and harvesting and receiving the great bounty that the Lord has to give. It's a great image and a great promise of what we have to wait for. What would it feel like not to have to have swords or spears or modern day you know, warfare, nuclear warheads waiting all around the country at strategic points, so anything that comes, you can take it out. And all that, it will be turned into pruning hooks and plowshares. So maybe it will be more like Nebraska. Charming farmland. There's plenty of farmland out there for plowshares and pruning hooks. They won't lift up sword against nation. They won't learn warfare anymore. What a word there for learning warfare. Something that you learn. You become accustomed to it. You go to school for learning warfare. That you may be more skilled at bloodshed. The necessity of that, and today you need that in order to defend yourselves. Rather, a day that will come where you don't need to learn warfare. You don't need to become skilled in that. Because nation won't take up sword against nation. It would just be this great peace that we have. So what a, what a glorious day. We have that to look forward to. It looks like we're about at time. And so we'll pick up, probably back up a little bit, back into verse 3 for next week. At least we ended a little more on a high note this week. So we got, got good Micah chapter 4 here. And not the bloodshed or chopping up my peoples and cauldrons and stuff. So glad we moved on a little bit further and got a little bit into chapter four for a little more pleasant ending here. But with that, the Lord be with you.